Okay, if you would, let's return to the book of Romans and chapter 14. Uh, the book of Romans and chapter 14. You cannot be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump. You cannot be a Christian and vote for a Democrat. Having Sunday school for kids separates them from their parents. It's a harmful practice. Modern dating, sinful. Kissing before your wedding day, it's wrong. Working at a store that sells lottery tickets. That's a sin. To refuse military service to defend your country when you've been called upon is sinful. To participate in military service is sinful. Confederate monuments and flags are offensive and an obstacle to the gospel. No Christian should display them. Confederate monuments and flags help us remember our history and our men who died defending their families. We ought to be proud of them. And on and on we could go, couldn't we? You have an opinion probably about every one of those statements. Uh, you probably agreed with some and disagreed with others. I certainly do. Uh, yet each of those is an issue where there is no blatant, clear verse of Scripture that says what is right and what is wrong. Now, there are verses with general principles that we might think apply. We might even wonder why something that seems so obvious to us isn't obvious to others. But at the end of the day, we find that we see some of these issues differently than some of our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, on many of these issues, we who are part of the same local church, holding to the same basic beliefs, might find that we disagree. Over our previous two sermons in Romans 14... Paul has laid down for us some principles about how we are to love God and to love one another even when we disagree. We've seen that we are to welcome one another, accept one another, receive one another. We've seen that we are not to quarrel and we are not to despise one another. We've seen in this chapter that we are not to pass judgment on one another. But rather we are to trust that Jesus is at work in each of our lives. And that whatever someone fails to understand right now, Christ will take care of that. But Paul doesn't stop there. He has more to say on this subject. There are four Further commands that we are given here in Romans 14 about this issue. 
when Christians disagree and how we're to handle that situation. So look with me at verses 5 through 19 and remember that we're reading the very word of God. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Okay, so in these verses, we see three areas of disagreement that were present in the church in Rome. There were disagreements among Christians in our day. There were disagreements among Christians in, in their day, even within the church in Rome. Are certain days more important than others? Apparently, that was quite the divisive issue for them. Are some days more important than others, or should we treat all days as equally important? Likely, there were many Jewish Christians in the church who had come from a long history of keeping fast days and feast days. The calendar for Old Testament Jews was filled with these fast days and feast days. Not all days were alike. Some days were special, set apart by God for these feast days and fast days. Now that they were Christians, many of these Jews continue to believe that, that they should keep these days. 
They didn't believe they needed to do it to be saved. These weren't legalists. They understood salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This was not the same situation as the church in Galatia, where people thought there, if you don't keep these holidays, you're not a Christian. That's that's not the situation here. Paul's message to the Galatians was, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul's tone to the Galatians was much stronger because he saw them as compromising the gospel. Their very salvation was at stake because they were teaching, you better keep these days or you're not saved. It's not the issue here. These Jewish Christians in Rome understood salvation by grace. But longing to honor Jesus, longing to honor their Lord... They wanted to make sure that they were living a life that would be in obedience to him. And they were convinced that that obedience to Jesus meant continuing to keep these days. But there were Gentiles in this church. In fact, there were more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. They didn't have this long history of feast days and fast days. They were coming out of a a very different system of life. And they were convinced that we ought to treat every day the same. And there was disagreement. Now, this wasn't the only issue dividing the Roman Christians. Uh, In verses 14 through 17, we see that the question of eating meat uh, was an issue that divided these Christians. And we've seen that the issue of drinking alcohol was an issue that was divisive in this church. We've already talked about those a bit in this series, and we'll talk more uh, probably next week. So what further commands does Paul give in this chapter to help these Christians find peace with one another? First, Paul commands that each Christian should be fully convinced in his own mind. Do you see that in verse 5? Verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This principle is huge. It means that you ought not to hold the positions you hold just because your parents held them. It means that you ought not to hold a position because I or Pastor Merle happened to hold to that position. You are to hold the convictions you hold because you have been convinced in your own mind by the word of God. Calvin goes so far as to say, it is the first principle, the first principle of a right conduct that men should be dependent on the will of God and never allow themselves to move even a finger while the mind is doubtful. The will of God is to preside over all our actions. In other words, Calvin says, if you're not sure, if if you're doubting about whether or not what you're about to do is in accordance with what God would have you do, don't do it. If you're not convinced that what you're about to do is an okay thing, if you're not convinced that it's a righteous thing, if you're not convinced that it's, it's not a sin, don't risk it. Don't take a chance. You should only say and do those things that you know from the word of God to be good, right, and holy. You should be convinced in your own mind about the way you live. 
This raises some big questions for Christians. Do you know why you believe what you believe? Do you have reasons for the way you live the way you live? Are your daily habits, your weekly practices, are they grounded in Scripture? Are you truly living as a disciple of Jesus, having fashioned your life around his teaching? Could you defend the way you live with chapter and verse? Baptists throughout history have been particularly known as people of the book. We are to be people of the book. We're always saying to our fellow believers, but where do you see it in the book? Is your mind captive to this book? Are you holding convictions that have been shaped by this book? We are not to be like an unanchored ship out on the sea, being blown this way and being blown that way. We are not to be the kind of person who thinks whatever the last person we talk to thinks. We are to be principled men and women. We are to be people of sure conviction. Are you growing in that? Are you growing in that? Are you a person with solid convictions under your feet? Paul says, be convinced in your own mind. Number two. Paul teaches that our convictions should be rooted in our desire to honor our Lord. This is verses 6 through 9. That the convictions that you hold ought to be rooted in your desire to honor the Lord Jesus. His point is this. Even when Christians disagree, we should each hold the position we do out of a genuine desire to honor Jesus. Two Christians who disagree on an issue should still have the same aim, even as they're holding different positions. Our goal should be the same. Joe wants to live a life that glorifies Christ. Mike wants to live a life that glorifies Christ. They have two different positions on what that looks like. But the aim is the same. Look at verses 6 through 9. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. So why is he observing the day? To honor the Lord Jesus. The one who eats, talking here probably about meat, right? Eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. So the one who says, yeah, I think we could eat meat. And he gets his barbecue sandwich and he says, and I am honoring God because I thank God for the gift of a barbecue sandwich. See, he sees this as this is God-centered living. But the person who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. God, this is how I show you are great and glorious in my life. I am keeping your will not to eat meat. Both believe they're honoring the Lord. Both are seeking to serve Jesus. But each is fully convinced in his own mind of a different position, a different view. Verse 7 None of us live, he's talking here about Christians. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. That's not who we are as Christians. We've been bought with a price. 
We're to glorify God with all that we are. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. To this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. We're going to unpack more of that next week. But the main thing to see in that paragraph, Paul seems to have in mind these, these days of fasting Some in the church of Rome, especially those of a Jewish background, were convinced were honoring the Lord by not eating. Others were convinced, no, we're honoring the Lord by eating what God has given us with gratitude. And Paul says that both groups of people, those who abstain, those who eat, are doing so to honor the Lord and should do so to honor the Lord. The point is 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. Whether you eat or drink or whether you don't eat or drink. Do all to the glory of God. Note that in verses 7-9, through 9, Paul is giving us a wonderful description of what it means to be a Christian. He says that if we live, we live to the Lord. Our our whole lives are to be lived to Him. He is our chief love. He is literally the Lord of our lives and we live unto Him. And if we die, we're to die unto Him as well. We're to die as people of faith, knowing that He will bring us safely through death into His very presence. We're to die with the eager expectation that Christ will receive us. And so whether we live or whether we die, we belong to Jesus and we live and die for his sake. Paul even said that's the reason Jesus died and rose again. That he would be Lord of both the living and the dead. As the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Christ was already Lord over all. But as a human being, Jesus was appointed Lord over all after he perfectly fulfilled the mission God had given him. Jesus did what no one else has done. He lived a perfect life of obedience, even to the obedience to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, his father raised him up, exalted him, made him a glorified human being. He's still one of us. He's a human being, but now a glorified human being. And as a man, a flesh and blood man, he has been made Lord of both the dead and the living, of all. And we as his followers are to live and die unto him. There has never been a human king who could say that his dominion extended beyond this life. A lot of kings have rule that extend to people in this life. The rule of King Jesus extends to people who are both living and dead. Jesus' dominion is greater, grander, more glorious, more wonderful than any other king. When we say Jesus is Lord of all, we mean he's been given authority over all people, both those breathing and walking on this earth today, but also all who have already died. He is Lord over them all. He has authority over those who are physically dead, and he has authority over those who are physically alive. He has Lord over, he is Lord over all who are spiritually dead, and he is Lord over all who are spiritually alive. He is Lord of all. He's worthy of his lordship 
He's good, he's glorious, he's perfect, and he's worthy to be lived unto and died unto. This is the key conviction that we as Christians hold. Even if we disagree on some minor issues, this conviction unites us. We are to live and to die unto Christ and unto Christ alone. Now, we already looked at verses 10 through 13 in the previous message on this chapter. We saw there Paul's command not to pass judgment. But we do have this other command in verse 13. So look at verse 13. We learn here that we're not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. Right? Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. We talked about that. But rather, decide, determine, be intentional, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And just to be clear, the word brother there, Adelpho in the Greek, it, it refers to both men and women. Okay? It's kind of like our word mankind. It's a masculine word, but it refers to all people. Paul is calling us to love God and to love each other when we disagree by not putting a stumbling block or a hindrance before one another. Now, what does that mean? Because Christians have lots of different ideas about what it means to put a stumbling block before someone. Some people think that simply doing anything in the presence of another believer that that believer thinks is sinful is putting a stumbling block before them. So if there was someone in our church who thought that a woman wearing pants is a sin, then all the women in our church would need to wear dresses to church from that day forward so as not to do something in the presence of that believer that they think is wrong. It would be a stumbling block to them to do in their presence what they think is wrong. That's the way some people understand the idea of a stumbling block. Now, growing up where I did and in the churches that I did, I heard that used most often regarding alcohol. I've heard Christians taught that even if you think it's okay to drink alcohol in moderation... You must never do so publicly because there might be a Christian who thinks that alcohol is a sin and they might see you doing it and that would be a stumbling block. Now, if we take that view, what would you expect Paul to say to the church in Rome and especially those people in Rome who believed that eating meat was okay while others believed it was sinful? You would expect Paul to say to them, even though you understand that eating meat is okay, don't ever do it in public. Eat that meat in the privacy of your own home. Because there might be others in the church who would see you do it, and that would be a stumbling block. Or you might expect Paul to say to those who ate food on fast days, don't let anyone see you eating on a fast day. Because if they see you eating that meat and it's a fast day... It might cause them to stumble. But that's just not the way Paul addresses the issue. He doesn't teach for those who eat meat to stop for the sake of those who don't. He doesn't teach for those who eat on fast days to stop for the sake of those who are fasting. So what does he teach? 
What does he say about what it means to put a stumbling block before a brother or sister? Well, I'm simply going to note the points that Paul makes and then try and draw a conclusion. Y'all with me? Here we go. Number one, Paul indicates that what someone thinks really matters. It's very clear here. What someone thinks really does matter. If someone thinks that a particular behavior is a sin, that does matter. If they commit that act while believing that they are sinning and choose to do it anyway, they are committing a sin. Verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He's speaking here about meat, for example. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So maybe I've become convinced that drinking sodas is sinful. I've just become convinced. I've become convinced that all sodas are sinful. Do you know the things that sodas do to your body? It's just, it's just wicked. And then, I'm with some friends, everybody else. They, they brought the cooler. It's full of Cokes and Pepsis and Sprites and Cheerwine. And there's nothing else in the cooler. I'm really thirsty. You know what? I, I think this is sinful. But I'm going to do it anyway. That is sin. It's not a sin because drinking cheer wine is a sin. It's a sin because I think it's a sin and I'm choosing to do it anyway. An action that in itself is not sinful at all becomes sinful when I intend to act against what I think is God's will. Because I'm supposed to be living unto Jesus. And if I think Jesus says no sodas, and I say Jesus says no sodas, but I'm going to drink the soda anyway, I'm not living unto Jesus. I'm living against Jesus. We see the principle in verse 23. See it there in verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. In other words, this is the person sitting at the table and, and Joe's over here saying, don't eat the barbecue. And Mike's over here saying, you can eat the barbecue. And, and here's Billy in the middle and he has doubts, but he eats anyway. Paul says, no, he, he shouldn't have done that. Because whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. Billy is not able to eat that meat in a way that says, I thank God for this and I'm doing this unto Jesus. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That last statement, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, is so comprehensive and so explosive that we're going to come back to it and explore it more deeply. But the point for now is this. If a person even has doubts about whether something is sinful or not and then chooses to do it anyway, they're not acting in faith. They're acting in sinful unbelief. Don't play fast and loose with holiness. Don't play fast and loose with obedience to God. Don't be the person that says, I don't know if this is sinful or not. Let's chance it. 
think about the boyfriend and the girlfriend. Trying to think, how far is too far? How many times have I heard that question? How far is too far? Can we kiss? Can we go further than kissing? How far is too far? That's exactly this attitude. I don't know when it becomes sin. Let's see. Can, can we go another step? Is that, is that, let's chance it. It's so contrary to the life of faith which says, Jesus, you lead me, you guide me, and I will be careful to do nothing that I even doubt may be against your will. What you think does matter. And what your brother or sister thinks does matter. Second principle we see here to help us figure out what it means to put a stumbling block. We do see here that to grieve your brother is not loving. To grieve your brother is not loving. Just follow Paul's argument here. Verse 15. 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. The point is simple. It grieves the heart of your brother or sister in Christ when they see you do something they believe is wrong for you. If they believe this is sinful and they are watching you do it, it does cause them discouragement. And it does cause them anguish. And the more they love you, the more genuinely grieved they are by what they think is your sin. So even if you're absolutely convinced that getting a tattoo is permissible and good and right, it is in a sense unloving to your brother and sister to do this in front of them and to cause them grief because they believe you're doing harm to yourself. And they love you. And it genuinely hurts them. No Christian wants to see another Christian walking a path of sin. Let's put ourselves in the shoes or the sandals of some of these Roman Christians, okay? It's Sunday, the Lord's Day. Rome was not a Christian city. Sunday was a work day most of the time. And so we know that... Um, most Christians on most Sundays gathered together before the workday on Sunday morning. Uh, they would pray and they would sing. In some ways it was similar to a sunrise service. Then those who were uh, under obligation to do so went to work. There was no Sabbath principle operating in the Roman Empire. It was a hard thing to keep the Sabbath in the Roman Empire. They would come back together at the end of the day on Sunday when they got off work, they would worship, they would hear the word of God read, and they would keep the love feast, that weekly potluck dinner where they would come together, share a meal together, and then they would take the Lord's Supper to remember what Christ had done for them. So it's Sunday evening, and you're in Rome, and you're with your fellow believers you're probably meeting in a house church most of the time. The whole congregation couldn't gather together. They didn't have access to nice public spaces, right? They, they typically had to meet in small groups and homes. By the way, that meant you really got to know your fellow believers in your house church. I mean, when it's a small group, you really get to know these people, okay? So you're one of the Christians that happens to meet at Aquila and Priscilla's house. 
They're there in Rome. That's, they have their house church. We know that they hosted a, a group in their home. So you're one of the group that meets at Aquila and Priscilla's house. Songs have been sung. There's been a time of prayer. They don't have a New Testament yet, but Old Testament scripture has been read. An elder has stood up and taken some time to explain uh, some of the truths of the Christian faith and to recount what, what Christ taught. Maybe even a letter has come from Paul or Peter or someone, and, and they read that to the group. And now it's time for the meal. Um, okay, so it's, a, it's time for the meal. You know each other. You know the people around you. And that means you know that in your little house church, there's a fellow named Janice. And he is convinced that eating meat is sinful. And he has reasons for his belief. Oh, he'll tell you all day long his reasons. Why he is convinced that eating meat is wicked. Now, you know that's not right. Janice is is wrong. He's just wrong. But Janice is still growing as a believer. And the principle that Paul has already laid down, that what God has declared to be clean is not unclean, that has not clicked for him. He's still growing. He's just not there yet. Are you going to bring your roast beef sandwich to the love feast? And are you going to sit beside Janice, whom you know is grieved as he watches you do what he thinks is sinful? Are you going to bring it? Are you going to eat it right there in front of him? Paul says that to do that is to knowingly grieve your brother. It is to cause him anguish. It is unloving. You ought to be willing to forego anything for the sake of love. We ought to have enough self-control and enough self-denial that we are willing to put away even the best of God's gifts if we know it's going to cause our brother or sister grief. In fact, just as it would be wrong for Janice to eat that meat because he's convinced it's sinful, it is wrong for you to sit there and eat it in front of him. When you know of his conviction and you know it causes him needless grief and worry over your soul. It doesn't mean you can't have lamb kebab somewhere else. Another time, another place. Doesn't mean you can't even go out to a public restaurant with others and eat lamb kebabs. But if you know Janice is going to be there, yeah, think twice. The issue is not the meat. The issue is being mindful of your brothers and sisters and living in a way around them that cares for them. And sometimes loving your brother or sister in Christ means foregoing some rights that you have. Now we have to be so careful here. I wish I could just give you clean and easy principles that make this easy. But the truth is you cannot draw artificial lines. The proper course of action is going to look different in different circumstances with different people. What is most loving in one case is not going to be most loving in another case. So for example, suppose someone comes into our church and they are convinced, wrongly, but they are convinced that men and women should not sit on the same side of the sanctuary. This is an issue in many European churches. Um, when some of us were in Galatz, Romania, we visited churches like this. Churches where all the women sit on one side, all the men sit on the other side. 
If someone comes into our church and they have that conviction and they believe we're sinning by doing what we're doing right now, does that mean that from that day forward, in order not to cause our brother grief, we're going to start sitting all the men on one side and all the women on the other? It could be that after prayer and discussion, we decide that's the best course to take. But I think it's more likely that we would come to the conclusion that the most loving thing we can do for that person and for the body as a whole is to sit down with them. To explain to them as best as we can why we do what we do and see if there are ways that we can accommodate them without compromising what we know to be true. All I'm trying to do through these examples is say, this gets tricky. This gets hard. And anyone who comes to you with a prescription and says, this is exactly how to handle every situation of disagreement in a local church, they're young and naive. It's going to look different. We're going to need to pray for wisdom, but we do have a driving principle here, a driving principle that Paul is laying down for us, and it's this. It's the principle of love. Let your decisions be motivated by how to best love your brother and love your sister. Don't let your decision be motivated by how to protect your rights. Love your brother more than your barbecue. Love your sister more than your alcohol. Love your fellow believers more than your enjoyment of any particular earthly rights and freedoms that God has given you to enjoy. Your brother or sister is more important than any of those. You probably have questions. Because I do. (laughs) Have some time for that tonight. Let me close this way. Do you see the value that the Bible puts upon human souls? Do you see how we are commanded to forego other things rather than to harm or grieve a human soul? Human souls are valuable to be treated with care. And you've never met a person who's not an eternal soul. The message of the Bible is that we've all turned aside, broken God's laws. We've made our souls guilty, dirty, filthy before the eyes of God. We've taken this precious gift of an eternal soul and we've engaged those souls in rebellion against God. And that's why Christ came. Christ came to save souls, to deliver souls from the torments of hell. He looked upon human souls with mercy and compassion so that all who turn to him will be saved. If that is how Christ treats human souls, if he was willing to forego the glories of heaven in order to love human souls, we should imitate him. We should be willing to forego anything in order to love human souls. And if you're here and your soul has never found rest in Christ. I encourage you to run to Him and to believe on Him. Let's pray.